Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations in each of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Going back in time a little bit, both the ancient Greeks and Romans offered accounts of something called the Ages of Humanity. And their stories depicted the degradation of the human condition over time. And they use metals to depict this, the successively decreasing value of metals corresponding with the degradation of humanity. They began with gold, the golden age, and next came silver, then bronze, then iron. The iron age of man being the age in which the authors Hesiod and Ovid wrote about. Ovid, the Roman poet in his work Metamorphosis, describes the first age, the golden age, as a time when peace and justice and unity prevailed, when humans lived as one with the divine, with one another, and with all creation. There was no heavy toil needed to feed themselves because the earth provided food for everyone in abundance. And from our sacred scriptures in the Bible, we can think of the Garden of Eden. Before Adam and Eve took their focus off God and made a forbidden fruit the object of their desire and loyalty. Moving from the Golden Age to the lesser ages of silver and bronze, there's increasing conflict in humanity, war and violence leading to division. Pride and greed are rampant. And finally, we come to the Iron Age of man, iron being the least of these four metals. And it's here where all the degradations exist in great measure and where truth and modesty are not to be found. There's no loyalty and there's little evidence that the Golden Age ever existed. Our scripture passages today bear witness to the Iron Age of humanity. We see evidence of greed and pride and division. All of these have overcome any honesty and modesty and loyalty to God. In your bulletin today, you'll, you'll find an image, two images on a half sheet of paper. I invite you to take those out. And first together, we'll look at the image of what looks like a merchant doing business in a warehouse. This image is, is a commentary on the Iron Age of humanity. This merchant is preparing to sell to a customer. You can see him gripping his pencil, maybe with a lot of worry and consternation, writing down in his account book, writing down the weights and measures before him. If you notice the scale off to the left, you'll see that the ropes are not equal in length, representing a falsely balanced scale. The merchant is getting away with something here. He's making false profits, so to speak. And again, see how hunched over he is, minding the details, closed off from what's going on around him, measuring his gains as he meticulously weighs out an unsuspecting customer's losses. 
So in light of this image, we think of the passage from the prophet Amos that we just heard Becky read for us. God has sent the prophet Amos to the people of Israel. And Amos' role is to play back to them their lives. What he says is what's going on in the, with the people of Israel. The people are saying, when will the Sabbath be over so we can get back to work? back to our warehouses, our false scales, so we can cheat the poor to secure ourselves more and more and more. Well, it's clear in this passage from Amos that God is deeply grieved and angered by the people's lack of loyalty. God is the one that's made an everlasting covenant, and the people are not keeping their side of the covenant. Their hearts have strayed far from God, and when, what happens is what always happens when God's people shift loyalty from the living God of love to the things and ways of this world. Dishonesty, disunity, disharmony, and suffering. It leads to those who have getting more, and from those who lack, more is taken away. Amos is sent to be a voice of warning and correction and to point them back to their God. And then we look at the story from, the Luke, from Luke's Gospel. And again we see an Iron Age scene. There's greed and conflict, questionable loyalty in this parable of the dishonest manager. But unlike Amos, which seems clearly to teach what is not godly living, the parable Jesus uses here to teach his followers confounds me, us, perhaps you, and his audience back then. It's just not very clear, or it's not expected what we might hear. Well, this parable is doing very well what parables are meant to do. We recall the literal meaning of the word parable is to throw aside. So like a curveball, Parables come at us with the unexpected. They get our attention, calling us to wake up. For me, if I ever think I have this journey of faith all figured out, Jesus' parables remind me of the finitude of my human understanding and usually leave me with more questions. This parable is one of the lesser known of most of Jesus' parables, I'm wondering if some of you have never heard it before. It has a very recognizable beginning. There was a rich man, it begins. Jesus often begins parables in this way. Wealth, money, our relationship with it are common themes throughout the scriptures, Older and New Testament. Because God knows us, God who graced us with free will, the freedom to choose, knows that we will need help to keep choosing God and to not let worldly wealth and its opportunities to amass more to take us captive. I doubt that this parable is many preachers' favorite. It's so confusing. But today it was in the lectionary, so it chose us. Scholars across the ages have very little consensus about its meaning. The curveball here is that the rich property owner ends up praising the dishonest property manager 
for his cunning way, his shrewdness in how he took care of himself. The manager has been squandering his master's property, and the rich owner has found out. The manager knows his career is over, and he panics. For he knows he's too weak for manual labor, and way too egotistical to beg. But he sees a third choice. It's not to confess and ask for forgiveness and to change his ways but it's to cheat the system even more. To those who are indebted to his master, he says, here, quickly, scratch out what you owe and reduce it by such and such amount. And in so doing, the dishonest manager knows that he will win friends so that when he is hungry and thrown out one day soon, they'll take him in, give him some food, They owe him, after all. So what is the rich property owner's response? Bravo! The height of cleverness, well done! And Jesus then says to his disciples, the Pharisees, and all who are listening, the people of this world are more clever in dealing with their peers than our children who belong to the light in dealing with what and who's been entrusted to them. As always, Jesus' parables are meant to teach us something about God and God's realm. And in so doing, they teach us about ourselves, made in God's image. If we can assume that the rich property owner represents God and the dishonest manager represents us, then what's the message? Anytime we study the Bible, it's often helpful to look around the passage to see what comes immediately before and immediately following in the actual text. If you were here last week, you know Pastor Adam lifted up probably one of the most famous parables of Jesus, the return of the prodigal son. That parable is immediately before the one we're looking at today. In that story, we remember a younger son has demanded his early inheritance from his father. He's just not satisfied with his life and he wants to go off on his own. The father honors his request, gives him the inheritance. The son takes off and we're told in Luke chapter 15, 13, the son squandered his property in immoral living. Well, Luke uses these same words in today's parable in verse 1. The dishonest manager was charged with squandering the property of his master. And to squander is also a verb in Greek more commonly used to suggest a scattering of something like seed. Both the prodigal son and the dishonest manager are scattering property and not in the good steward way of scattering seed on the land to produce fruits and food for many. But it's a wasteful scattering, selfish, careless, only thinking of themselves. They're poor stewards of another's property or that which has been given them. And they both suffer. The son finds himself starving, relegated to feeding pigs as a hired hand. 
The pigs are being fed better than he is. The manager lives in fear of being tossed out to the streets and becoming homeless and hungry. And again, as we remember, Jesus' parables point us to God and God's realm. Let's look at the God figure in each. The father of the prodigal son every day is waiting, hoping for his son to return. He scans the horizon looking for him. And when the son finally does come home in desperation, starving, the father now is the squanderer. The father scatters his property for the benefit of his lost son that is now found. Not immorally, but lavishly with love. Kills the fatted calf, brings out the best wine, the best food, and throws a huge homecoming party rejoicing for the return of his son. And then the God figure in today's parable of the rich property owner The owner does not count the sin of the manager against him of his further dishonesty, his further squandering of the owner's property. The owner has so much wealth, he's unfazed by that little detail. But instead he praises the dishonest manager for being so resourceful, for acting so quickly to care for himself for, in a way, for being a good steward of his wits and opportunities in order to meet his needs. Jesus presents a question in today's parable. The property owner says, What is this I hear about you? Give an account. I wonder how we hear that question today for us. The story in Luke mentions loyalty to masters, suggesting we consider who is our master. Is it God who gave us life? Is it wealth or the promises of the world who falsely promise us life? As we consider the image again of the merchant, can we relate to this image of This merchant studying and worrying, maybe manipulating the accounts to ensure he feels secure, to get what he needs, or maybe to acquire more than he needs to guard his sense of security. What about our scales? Are they balanced? Are they true? Have we been good stewards of what's been entrusted to us? We have a powerful example of stewardship in our world this weekend, lived out and led by 16-year-old Greta Thunberg of Sweden. She is the young activist who has started a global movement of young and old alike for the sake of creation calling us to be good stewards of the earth that gives us life every day. Greta and an estimated 4 million people, young and old, converged on cities around the world this weekend as the UN Climate Action Summit takes place in New York City. And they're calling for the world's leaders to act, to wake up, to protect the earth, 
to face the reality of climate change that is causing sea levels to rise, threatening the lives and livelihoods of many around the world, the climate change that has led to historical fires in the Amazon rainforest, the very lungs of the earth. Like in Jesus' parables, Thunberg is calling the world and us to wake up. She says, for we are a wave of change, and together and united we are unstoppable. She has hope, and she says, we will rise to the challenge and to the leaders suggesting, will you? The prophet Amos, as all prophets, also calls God's people to wake up, saying it's not too late to change your ways and reverse your loyalties back to your true master, the living God. And Jesus, in his perplexing, surprising parable, calls us and all disciples also to wake up, to examine our scales. Are they honest? To examine our loyalties. Who's our master right now? Are we living with our feet still in the Iron Age? Or are we living out the hope that God calls us to? Are we striving for the Golden Age? Are we striving to live out God's realm of peace and love and restorative justice right here? Jesus extends a call to us to take account. And so we do not do this by only assessing how we might be missing the mark or failing. But we are so gifted by God that all of us is a good steward in some way of some of the gifts God has given us. So in some way, we are God's wave of change in ways we may not recognize. Maybe we have not taken account of that good in a while. Greta Thunberg reminds us to do so, to ask ourselves, how are we scattering seeds in our words, in our actions, in our prayer life that bring harmony and unity and peace and justice and glory to God? These are what delight God. And by focusing on those, we, we maintain our loyalty in its proper place to our true source of life. I invite you to take the, the card again and to look at the other image with me on the other side. The image of two hands surrounding a heart. In the middle of the heart is a scale, a balance, the symbol of a cross actually holding them up. And as we look at this, I want to say, as we close out today, a word about Sabbath and the importance of that command for us. For if we recall in the passage from Amos, the people are just waiting for Sabbath to be over already so they can get back to work, to securing their wealth, to earning and gaining. I know for me, if I spend any time of Sabbath's rest making to-do lists, trying not to worry about tomorrow, I am not resting. Sabbath God has given us for our own good, our upbuilding, our spiritual survival, which may lead to our literal survival. Sabbath is nothing more than pausing 
Some of us may have the luxury of 24 hours for that on any day of the week. Some of us may go 12. Some of us may have five minutes here and there throughout the day. All of it counts. When we honor the Sabbath to get quiet, to contemplate God, which means to look around, either inside of us or around us physically, and to see the gifts God has given us, to come to a spirit of gratitude and acknowledging that we are held as these hands hold this heart. Sabbath rest reminds us we are held by a God who provides. I invite you to notice this image. The hands are not clenching a pencil or an accounting book or the inter- looking at the internet screen at our bank account. They are open. They are lifting up the heart of it all, what truly matters. Where God is, there is love. Where love is, there is justice and peace, like the image of the balanced scales. Friends, may our loyalties be with our God who loves us without condition and always. And may we give thanks for how God has gifted us to be good stewards and scatterers of God's good seed in the world. Thanks be to God. Amen. Invite us now to join as we affirm our faith. This is adapted from the Confession of Belhar in our Book of Confessions. We believe in the triune God, creator, healer, comforter, who gathers and cares for the Church of Jesus Christ. We believe that as the Church, we are a community of faith that has been reconciled with God and one another through Christ's reconciling work. 
We believe, therefore, that unity is both a gift and an obligation for the Church, that this unity is to be active in a variety of ways, and that we love one another and pursue community with one another, that we come to know and bear one another's burdens, thereby fulfilling the law of Christ that we upbuild, admonish, and comfort one another, that we suffer with one another for the sake of righteousness, pray together, serve God together in this world, and together fight against all which may threaten or hinder this unity. We believe that God has entrusted the church with this message of reconciliation in and through Christ. You may be seated. Trusting God to provide, we now worship God as we return a portion of some of the good gifts God has given in our morning offering. (laughs) 